So we're starting our second week in the wilderness series. Yes, it's going to be great. Uh, Mike uh, kicked us off last week. So if you weren't here, that uh, podcast is up on our website. You can go listen to the podcast. I would encourage you to do that. Um, and so he, he kicked us off last week, and he talked about how God uses seasons of wilderness for his glory and how we need to anticipate growth during seasons of wilderness. And so I kind of want to continue with that today. So I'm going to pray quick, and then we're going to get started. Father, as we just sang, quiet the voice of doubt again. Echo within me every promise. God, let your word be louder than my fear. Lord, speak to the void when I can't see. God, nothing will overtake us. All of our hope is in you. So, Father, God, I ask that you would just send your spirit onto this place. God, that he would invade our hearts, that he would begin to soften us to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would take my words and split it into a hundred different pieces, each specifically for somebody in this room. God, I pray that you would just fill me. God, that I would decrease and that you would increase. And God, we trust in your promise this morning that your words will not return void and that they will accomplish what you set them out to do. So God, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've actually had some uh, recent wilderness experiences in my life. Uh, Thankfully, it has not been a a spiritual season of wilderness, but more of a literal one. Uh, So on uh, Friday, September 15th, Uh, Kip Bolt and I uh, started early in the morning on a journey out to Colorado uh, for a do-it-yourself archery elk hunt in the Colorado wilderness. And we had uh, no guides, nobody there to help us, just some food, our bows, some tents, a GPS, and that was it. And so we we were embarking on our trip, and this trip was 18 months in the making. We had spent hundreds of hours researching and, and scouting online and reading blogs and much to the dismay of our wives buying a lot of new gear. <laughs> gear, yeah. And we, we spent time preparing physically and mentally and we did everything that we could to be as prepared as possible by the time September came. And so our anticipation was high and we knew it was going to be difficult but we felt good about our changes. And so we left Friday, Friday morning, and by Saturday afternoon, we were at our first campsite, which you probably saw up there. And we spent the rest of the evening kind of walking around and uh, just scouting out the area and making a game plan for the next morning when we would really start to hunt hard. And so the, the next morning came with uh, some anxious anticipation, a rush of adrenaline, and some shots of instant coffee. And we hunted hard all day, and unfortunately, it was kind of raining and sleeting all day. And unfortunately, we didn't see any elk. And so we really had nothing to show for our first day other than some sore legs and some wet gear. So we're like, that's okay. It's the first day. We got about six or seven more days left. You know, we'll be all right. And so unfortunately, the night brought on more rain and the most ominous thunderstorm I've ever lived through, which is a story for a different time and a different message because I don't have enough time right now. But we woke up the next morning and all of our gear was even more wet than before. And so we decided to 
to take the rest of the morning, build a fire, and dry out all of our gear. And so we're trying to find dry wood and gathering sticks. And in the midst of breaking sticks and putting them in a pile, uh, Kip broke a stick and a piece of wood flew up and hit him in the eye. Now, some of you may or may not know, but Kip has a tremendous propensity for eye injuries. (laughs) And it seemed like that streak was destined to continue. You can ask him to tell you the story later. But as a medical professional, and also just as a human being, you don't mess around with your eyes. And so we're like, you know what? We had enough concern for his sight that we just needed to get down off the mountain and go get it checked out. So we climbed back off the mountain, packed up all of our stuff, and went to the nearest hospital. So several hours and, and uh, a painful ER visit later for Kip. I, it wasn't painful for me. I was just waiting. But uh, we had found ourselves on the western border of Colorado, and uh, we had a morning appointment with an ophthalmologist. So uh, a painful and sleepless night for Kip. Again, not as much for me. Uh, we, the morning came, and uh, we saw the ophthalmologist, and thankfully we got a, a great prognosis. Kip got to keep his eye, praise Jesus. He also would, would be able to see after his eye healed, also praise Jesus. But unfortunately, we, we, he, he said, you know what, you're going to be okay, and you can keep hunting, but you need to stay as close to civilization as possible, because if this thing goes bad or if you get an infection, you just need to be here. And so we're like, okay. And so we found ourselves in a part of the country that we knew nothing about, had done no research on, and we weren't prepared for. And we just had to wing it. And so we, we hunted hard for several more days, and uh, unfortunately, we, we did not see or kill an elk. We had some really good encounters with basically every big game animal that Colorado has to offer, but no elk. We saw some amazing vistas, and we had a great time. But on the surface, our trip looked like a failure because we hadn't accomplished the goal that we, we had set out to do when we started the trip. You see, we had a plan to go into the wilderness and accomplish certain goals and to do certain things. And because of the hardships and the obstacles that we faced, we saw things and did things that we wouldn't have otherwise. What actually came out of our trip was far different than what we had hoped for or expected when we went in. And in many ways, it was ultimately more beneficial than if we would have just hiked onto the mountain the first day and killed an elk. We wouldn't have learned anything. We wouldn't have seen anything. We would have seen one mountain and one elk, and then we'd be done. See, our expectations of the wilderness differed greatly from what the wilderness actually produced in us. Our expectations of the wilderness differed greatly from what the wilderness actually produced in us. And I think the same can be said for the wilderness that you're going through right now for the seasons of wilderness that you've been through and the ones that you will go through. Now, Mike kicked off this series last week, and he said that the book was kind of inspired out of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, And so he he mentioned all this last week, but we're dumb and we forget things, so we're going to review a little bit. So Ezekiel was a prophet of the nation of Israel during a very tumultuous time. Israel was uh, caught in the middle of a centuries-long struggle for power between the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. And during this time, the the nation of Israel had been uh, adopting the religious practices and and the pagan ways of the nations around them as the powers began to flux around them and and different people took power. By the time Ezekiel is on this scene, the Babylonians are in control of the area. And during the time when the Israelites are adopting the ways of the pagan nations, God is repeatedly warning them through prophets. And he's saying, just turn, turn back to me. Come back to me. And they repeatedly disobeyed and disregarded 
the warnings of God. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send you into the wilderness. And so through the occupation of the Babylonians, God sends his chosen people into the wilderness. They're either exiled to Babylon or they're left to fend for themselves in a destroyed, looted, and war-torn Jerusalem. And so let's turn to Ezekiel 20, verse 35 through 36. It says this, And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. But God's intention for Israel was not to leave them in the wilderness but to reconcile them to himself for his glory and for their good. Drop down to verse 42 through 44. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, to the country that I swore to give to your fathers. He's bringing them back home from exile. And there you shall remember your ways and all of your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. See, God dealt with his people not according to what they had done, but according to his character and according to his goodness. See, I believe that there are two main reasons why we enter into a season of wilderness. One reason is as a direct result of sin, much like the Israelites. And it's God's discipline. Not punishment, but discipline. And I qualify that because if you're a Christian today, God does not punish your sin. That punishment was already taken by Jesus on the cross. You are not being punished. But as a good father disciplines his children, he is disciplining you to sanctify you and to grow you and to make you more like him. The second reason we enter a season of wilderness is that it's a God-ordained season that's not a direct result of anything that you have done or anything that you have chosen to do or the choices that you have made, but it's meant purely for your sanctification and for your growth. Now, it's an undeniable fact that the greatest seasons of growth come out of the roughest seasons of wilderness. And so as a loving father, God allows or orchestrates these seasons into your life to prepare you for something greater that he has in store for you. And this is not a rejection of God. Him sending you into the wilderness is not his rejection, but rather it's an affirmation that he is jealous for you, that he loves you deeply. It's an affirmation that he wants to use you in a mighty way. Take the example of Jesus. In Matthew 3, verse 17, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately after Jesus came out of the water, a voice from heaven, the Father, came down and said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, moments after the Father's affirmation and love and pleasure is spoken over his Son, is sent into a God-ordained stint in the wilderness to be tempted, to be tried, to go through the pain of hunger and starvation and thirst. 
and ultimately through the power of the Spirit and the firm foundation that is God's word to come out of the wilderness ready for his formal ministry. Ready for the ministry that he was destined to fulfill that would change the course of history. Ready to continue living his life in full and complete submission to the will of the Father. You see, God does not allow you to go into the wilderness or send you through the wilderness to accomplish your own plans. To accomplish what you think should be accomplished according to your itinerary. No, we are sent into the wilderness because God, because God wants to work something in you according to his plan. And it won't be comfortable. You will feel pain and it will probably last longer than you think that it should. There will be trials. There will be times when you feel like everything is lost and there is no hope in going on. But it's in those moments when God is teaching you far greater things than you could ever imagine. When you finally give up on your plan for your life and start living for his plan. When he is breaking down what still remains of your flesh so that he can replace it with his goodness and his perfection. When he is showing you that his strength is the only thing that you can count on. When you realize that his goodness and his faithfulness are always present, especially in times of pain and suffering. You see, some people think that when the suffering comes that God must have removed his presence from them or it's some sort of curse, that God is no longer good or faithful or that he turns his face away from your suffering and pays no attention. But what is actually occurring is that God is pressing He is turning his attention towards you with immense anticipation, just waiting for you to turn to him so that he can begin to mold you into the image of his son. So that he can begin to peel your fingers off of whatever you're holding on to and replace it with his plan. When you realize that his goodness and his faithfulness are always present, so that he can begin to comfort you. And listen, comfort doesn't necessarily mean that he removes you from that wilderness, that he removes you from that suffering. But maybe you start seeing it in a different way. Psalm 57, verse 1, David says this, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge until destruction passes by. You see, David is saying here that his children find shelter under his wings. Does that mean that the storm that is raging around you stops? No. But now that you are under his wings, you start seeing the storm differently. You have a different perspective for what the storm really is. That storm is not your demise. It's what keeps you pressed up against your Savior. That storm is not the end, but it's where you start casting all of your cares upon him. That storm is not where you are crippled, but rather empowered to go out and bring someone else under the wings of your Savior. That storm is not where you are broken down, but it's where your Father is building you up to become more like him. You see, this is what your suffering could be. This is what God wants to do in and through you during a season of suffering, during a season of wilderness. 
but oftentimes we waste it. We waste our suffering by not participating in the massive work that God wants to do in and through you during this season. We waste our suffering by not participating in the massive work that God wants to do in and through you during this season. So what are some ways that we waste suffering? Maybe you're throwing a pity party. Everyone, look at me. Look at how hard my life is right now. Feel bad for me. Woe is me. Nothing is going right in my life. I can never catch a break. Did you know that I have this diagnosis and that diagnosis? And did you know that I have this symptom and that symptom? And I've had those symptoms for three years and I've tried everything and nothing works. Did you know that those people talk about me this way and these people betrayed me that way? Did you know? Did you know? Did you know? Did you know? And you try and bring other people into your pain. Now, I'm not saying that you have to suffer in silence or that you suffer alone. Absolutely not. That's what the body of Christ is for. But in your conversation, in what you post on social media, in your conduct, are you directing people's focus on your suffering and not on your Savior? Are you directing people's focus on your suffering and not on your Savior? Are you throwing a pity party? Maybe you suppress it or mask it. Maybe with substances so that you don't feel it as much or for a moment you forget your suffering. Or maybe you mask it with relationships. Moments of feeling alive and, and free so that for a moment you forget your suffering. Or maybe you just make yourself busy and work yourself to death and you never actually face what's going on. Because if you can keep the suffering away for long enough, maybe it will just go away. And you never actually address the suffering and look to your Savior and ask what he is trying to teach you and do in you. Or maybe you become bitter or callous. Well, my family and I always disagree and we always fight and nobody ever takes my advice, so I'm just done with them. And five, 10, 15 years down the road, you haven't even had the inkling of opening that communication back up again. Oh, well, now they come back to me. Now they come running back for forgiveness. After everything that you've done and everything that you put me through and everything that you've said and all the hurt that you caused me, you think I'm going to forgive you right now? And you have a heart of unforgiveness. Maybe you just try and white knuckle your way through the suffering. Just hold on as hard as you can and you put your head down. You don't need anybody else. You don't need anybody else's advice. You don't need any help. It's just you and the suffering. You put your, you put your head down. You hold on and you just white knuckle it through. You don't need anybody. You can do it on your own. You see, all of these things have one thread that's common between them. You're retreating to yourself rather than running under the protective and the instructive wings of your Savior. So if we're not supposed to waste our suffering, then what's the point of suffering in the Christian life? What's the purpose? Now, I've already alluded to it, but we suffer because through suffering, we are molded into the image of Jesus. And by becoming more like Jesus, we more clearly display his character and bring him glory. 
You see everything that happens in your life. If you're a Christian, everything that happens in your life is for your good and for his glory. Everything. Absolutely everything. And this is good news because in the midst of your suffering, you can say, yes, it's painful. But there's purpose in the pain. Yes, it hurts. But I serve a God who takes the greatest hurts and turns them into beacons of his grace. Romans 8.28 says this, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For we know that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So what is his purpose? His purpose is to bring glory to himself by taking a sinner like me and making me into the image of his son. So if you're called according to his purpose, his purpose is that you be made into the image of Jesus and be glorified with him and in doing so, drawing people towards his character and loving kindness. Turn to Romans 8.30. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice this entire verse is in the past tense. Which means that from God's perspective, this has all already been accomplished. It means that in the middle of a trial, we can have full confidence that by the grace of God, our end is not suffering, our end is not pain, our end is glory. Seated as an heir to the throne of heaven. See, you might not see it now because you're deep in the woods. You're in the middle of a trial and you can't see the forest for the trees. But what you need is a change in perspective. You need to look past the suffering and believe what God sees. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even close. For I consider that everything that is going on right now is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. I I love the first statement of the verse. For I consider. The Greek word that is used here for consider is logizmahi. Logizmahi. I love this. In the Greek, it means to take an account and decide. To take an account and decide. See, this is the perspective shift. Paul is saying, in light of my sufferings, even in this pain, even in this trial, even when the diagnosis is bleak, even when I don't understand, even when I have lost all hope and everything in my life seems like it's being ripped out from under my feet. I take an account and I decide that it is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Take an account and decide. Well, good's mahi. 
We consider it joy. It might not be joyful right now, but we need to consider it as such. See, God doesn't see the way that we see. We see suffering, but God sees sanctification. We see the pain now, but he sees the process. He sees the ultimate destination where you will be made more like Christ. And that, that is something that is not worth comparing to my present suffering. That is something to be joyful about. God is not working for your happiness. He is working for your holiness. God is not working for your happiness. He is working for your joy. God is not working for your comfort. He is working for your steadfast devotion, for your complete reliance on his strength. Timothy Keller says it this way. Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. Christ suffered so that when you suffer, you will be made more like him. Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered because when you suffer, you will be made more like him. So how does God use that suffering? How does he use seasons of wilderness to make us more like Jesus? Turn to Proverbs 17, verse 3. We're also going to go to Job 23 as well. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says this, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Now to Job 23, verse 10. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. You see, God uses suffering to test your heart. He knows the way that you are going, so he tests your heart. And when he is done, you will come out as gold. You see, when you are refining gold or silver or other precious metals, they're heated to very high temperatures, and they're liquefied. And, and when they're liquefied and during that process, the impurities begin to rise to the surface. And when those impurities rise to the surface, they're, they're scooped off, leaving the pure metal behind. The wilderness reveals our imperfections. The wilderness reveals our imperfections. That anxiousness that's sitting under the surface, it rises to the forefront. That anger that's hidden inside, it bubbles to the top. That pride that's hidden somewhere deep in a dark corner of your heart, that pride starts to come out. You see, when God takes you into the wilderness, he is trying to draw those things out of you. He is putting you through the fire so that you can come out as pure gold. Now, when you're refining the metal and it's heated to a high temperature and it liquefies and the impurities rise to the surface, unless you remove the impurities, the metal remains impure. The metal remains impure unless you remove the impurities. So maybe, just maybe, the reason you are still in a season of wilderness is because there is still something that God wants to draw out of you so that he can fill you with himself. Maybe your suffering is being extended because of your response to it. 
because God's intended purpose in that suffering has not yet been fulfilled. And the reason it hasn't been fulfilled is your heart is becoming harder and harder when he wants to soften it. But rather than letting you keep those impurities, God in his loving kindness holds you in the trial, holds you in the fire until you start turning to him. And let go of whatever it is you're holding on to. To accept the process of sanctification. Until your heart starts to change and is made more into the image of Jesus. Or maybe he pulls you out of the trial. Maybe he removes the suffering. For now. But he will bring you back in again. And again and again, because he is jealous for you. He made you a promise that he will work all things for your good. And so you best believe that he's going to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. He will work it out for your good. And it will bring him glory. You can clap, it's fine. So what should our approach to suffering be? We've talked about how God uses our suffering and how we're not supposed to waste it. And so how should we approach suffering? Well, rather than waste it, we need to welcome it with joy. We need to embrace our suffering, not in a masochistic way. Not in a fatalistic way, so I suggest accept our doom and, and roll over and die. No, we welcome suffering with joy, expectant. Expectant that God has allowed and ordained this time specifically for your good, for your sanctification, for his glory, to increase your reliance on him and your hope in his salvation. Romans 5 verse 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoiced in hope of the glory of God. See, this is a great good news verse. This is an easy verse, right? Yes, we are justified by faith, and we have peace with God. And through that faith, we have obtained access to grace, and through that grace, we can rejoice in the hope of what that grace bought for us. We can rejoice in the glory of God. This is an easy verse. Yes, give me the grace. Give me the hope. Give me the confidence in my salvation. But move on to verse 3. And we'll go through verse 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice also in suffering. Why? Because God is working for your good. 
Because this suffering is a catalyst that will make you more like Jesus. To prepare you for ministering to other people. And we know this because he has promised to work all things for your good. All things. You see, we serve a promise maker who is a promise keeper. All of his promises are yes and amen. And he has promised to work all things for your good. He is working for your good. Also note what Paul says about how God works in suffering. I love this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Notice that this is a process. You don't jump right from suffering to hope. This is a process, and processes take time. They take work. Processes happen one little bit at a time. They happen in stages. So you're suffering right now, but you're pressing into God. You're seeking what he's trying to do in you, and you're asking him, God, what do you want to do in me? I don't understand it right now, and this hurts. This is painful, and I don't understand, but, but I'm looking to you. Teach me. What do you want to do in me? And you keep asking, and you keep seeking, and you keep walking in faith, and now you have endurance. And through that endurance, you keep asking and you keep seeking. And you don't have to get out of the suffering anymore because now you have endurance. You can get through the suffering. And with that endurance, you keep asking and you keep seeking. God, I, I still don't understand. Thank you for this endurance, but I don't know. What are you trying to do in me? What are you trying to bring about in me? How are you trying to work through me? And you keep working through your suffering with that endurance. And now you have character. And people are starting to realize that you're different. Something's changing. They know that you're suffering, but despite your suffering, you're not becoming more bitter or more callous. You're not running to substances to try and cover up your suffering, but you seem to be more loving. You seem to be more joyful and forgiving and empathetic. but you still don't quite understand. And so you keep moving forward with your endurance and that character is building in you. Thank you, Jesus, for that character. Thank you for the endurance, but I'm, I'm still seeking. I still don't know what you're trying to do in me. How are you trying to work through me? And you keep asking and you keep seeking and you keep asking and you keep walking in faith through your endurance while that character is building. And now you find hope. And by this point, you know that that hope is not in yourself. But it's in your Savior. That is a hope that does not disappoint. That is a hope that does not put us to shame. Let's read Romans 5, verse 5 again. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have a hope that does not put us to shame. Why? Because from the moment that you gave your life to Jesus, God gave you himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he has been walking with you and beside you, holding you up through all of it. 
You see, the same God that led you into the wilderness is the same power and the same hope that gets you through the wilderness. The God that led you into the wilderness is the same hope and the same power that gets you through the wilderness. God does not dump you on one side of the wilderness and wait for you to come out on the other side. He sees the beginning and he sees the end. And he is leading you and empowering you every step in between. What kindness. What faithfulness. When your suffering turned to endurance, that was the Holy Spirit empowering you to push on. To keep moving. When your endurance turned to character, that was the Holy Spirit stirring up the character of Jesus inside of you to become more loving and more empathetic even in the midst of your suffering. You see, it's the Holy Spirit in you that produces the progress, not your own strength or understanding. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you that produces the progress not your own strength or understanding. So church, listen to me this morning. If you're in the midst of suffering right now, if you're in a season of wilderness, there is hope. A hope that does not put us to shame. And that hope is inside of you right now if you're a Christian. That hope is waiting to empower you to hold you up and to turn your suffering into endurance. And through that endurance, that hope is waiting to stir up the character of Jesus inside of you. If you are suffering this morning, God has given you himself so that you may hope. The God who promises to work all things for your good does not do so from far off. He does not promise passively. As we sang earlier, he is closer than your breath. And he says, listen, Ike. I know it's painful right now. I know I'm the one who brought you here. And I know you, I know you don't understand now. And I know you have a lot of questions, but hope in me, rest in me. I am working all things for your good. I know you feel like you don't have the strength, but I will give you all the power and all the strength and all the grace that you need. I will get you there. So rest in me. Trust in me. I have promised to work everything out for your good. And all of my promises are yes, amen. No matter what you're going through this morning, it's for your good. His sovereign hand is holding you where you need to be. And if you allow it, it will be a massive catalyst to sanctify you and prepare you for God's calling on your life. To be made more like Jesus and to call others into the loving and sanctifying arms of the Savior. See, God is working for your good. And there is a hope that is living inside of you, the Holy Spirit himself.
and he will not put you to shame, but empower you, turning your suffering into sanctification, turning your wilderness into abundant joy, into a beacon of his faithfulness, of his love, into a beacon of his grace. God is working for your good. I know I'm preaching for 40 minutes or, or more now on a Sunday morning, but whether you realize it or not, you preach to yourself the other six days of the week. So maybe you need to start preaching to yourself the promises of God, and maybe you need to start here, especially if you're in a season of wilderness. If you're in pain right now, start here. He is working for my good. He is working for my good. He is working for my good. Preach the promises of God to yourself. He is working for your good, so rest in him. He who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So trust in his promises. All of his promises are yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Lord, you are so faithful to take us where we are and make us into the image of your son. God, you don't dump us on one side of the wilderness and wait for us to come out on the other side. You empower us during every step in between. So, Father, right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and empower anyone in this room who is in a season of wilderness. God, I pray that you would begin to peel their fingers off of whatever they're holding on to. God, and accept the good that you are trying to do in them. Accept the sanctification. Lord, help us to rest in your promises. All of your promises are yes and amen. Church, let's sing that now.